Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? Good morning, Carolyn. Good to see you. You After a too. long weekend. Yeah. And good morning to Ross. Hey, Ross. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Good to be in the hot seat on the other end of the questions. Yes. Well, let me give our audience an an introduction to who we've got in the hot seat today. So today we have reporter um, Ross Wilkers, who's senior staff reporter for Washington Technology, and he focuses on the business of government contracting. Um, plus the companies and trends that shape the market. So, plus he's a fellow podcaster, Mark. Um, and today we're going to grill him on <laughs> government contracting and specifically the impacts of the FY23 defense funding bill, um, which includes $11.2 billion for cybersecurity, Alliant 3, and the government talent landscape. So, officially welcome. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Happy to follow your lead. You mentioned you mentioned a fellow podcaster, right? So usually I'm in your role of asking the questions, and now it's my turn to be the one answering them. So it'll be a good exercise for me in this role reversal. So Ross, you have 10 minutes to wrap up in a pretty bow. <laughs> That's right. Well, we I, I want to talk about the FY23 defense funding bill and specifically, like I said, the $11.2 billion for cybersecurity, which, by the way, Mark and I heard rumors that it was double that for cybersecurity. But that includes cybersecurity, cyberspace operations, and cyber research and development. So what kind of opportunities and challenges does this present to um, the government contracting community. Yeah, so to set the context for how it affects industry, it's not a short-term thing. It's it's essentially, whenever you see these funding bills signed into law out of Congress, and it doesn't matter whether it's the cyber bill that we're talking about here, the round 11, 12 billion, or even the infrastructure bill last year, it's for companies, it's like a hurry up and wait kind of thing. It's good news, but essentially the way to think about the money here is it. it's like it's sitting in an escrow account waiting to be used and how it's to be decided upon and how they're going to apply it. So when that turns into actual procurement and acquisition activity, that's kind of the thing to watch because that's not what Congress is telling them to do. They're telling them what it, how much you have and what it's going to be used for, but there's an extra bit of process and decision-making that comes out of that. And that's what companies are going to be watching for and positioning. Does like continuing resolution impact all that kind of stuff? Um, meaning like, is this, is this stuff get kicked down the road because uh, we may not have a budget, you know, in place for, half the year or you know something like that does it delays it right it moves yeah. it to it basically moves the finish line 
to the right. So woohoo, you got a funding package, you know, for cyber and advanced research and development, but when it's a matter of when agencies see that, right? So if there's a six-month continuing resolution, which has been the norm and it's almost embedded into the public sector ecosystem that you're going to work under these stopgap funding measures every fiscal year. They don't, they wouldn't start to see it in their account until early spring of next calendar year. And that's halfway through the government fiscal year. Yeah. And then you got a mad rush to try to spend money. So I've heard yes. I've heard people say I've heard <clears throat> government folks say in this uh, in this arena, how would we how will we ever spend this money? You know, is there and a- they have to find and they have to find a place to put it because the accountants and not official accountants but unofficially right people that watch this if they look at money agencies have they sit on they don't need it they go hmm you're not getting it next time next fiscal year and yeah, it becomes use it, or it lose it <laughs> right use is it or lose it contract vehicle that gets set up and they send out rfps and there's a prime and all of that i mean how do they access this money so just to kind of set the context for viral right i'm as a business reporter i'm not on capitol hill and i cover a little bit about procurement and acquisition as it pertains to industry but i, I can certainly speak to the direction of how companies look at it and where it's going. So they get the money, they understand what it's used for. And this is what we're talking about is a very different funding approach than say defense weapon systems. Okay. So if the air force gets allotted a certain amount of money to buy a certain amount of fighter jet, that's what it's going to be used for because Congress has the power of the purse strings, right? When I read this, the details on this particular cyber and research package when I was heading in, it does strike me, it continues to, as somebody who covers essentially software for living, right? Things with ones and zeros. It's very general when I read this language. It just says cyber. Okay, what for? Cyber. Oh, uh, okay. So it so it's leaving a lot of that decision power on what exactly they need in cyber to agency directors, and then it goes down into the different operations divisions inside agencies, and then procurement and contracting officers make their decisions based on that. This seems like this is. Um it, it it seems like it's needed. It's the, the money's needed in this area, but it it's it's kind of um, you know, go go forth as in conquer as you kind of see fit. It's like, you know, some of the or may it feels that way anyway. Um, or maybe there's there there are agencies that like CISA that drive overarching kind of Strategies, strategies, and construct of these things like zero trust, and say, look, this this is the kind of the framework you want to kind of work in. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, you're starting to see. I should starting is probably the not word, not the right word. When it comes to individual procurements, and even at a policy level, right over all of procurement and acquisition 
Um, there's a lot of attention and focus on cybersecurity and what's expected out of industry. It's not a nice to have. It's not, okay, here's what you can offer us and let's separate kind of the cybersecurity and what you do outside of that, right? Cyber's being embedded into a lot of this, which one could argue it should have been that way anyway. If we look at the way the digital world is, it's not nearly a safe place, speaking as somebody who's suffered a minor financial cost over uh, over being breached a couple of times. Um, you know, you start to get the picture there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ross, um, do, does money like this um, from legislation flow into existing programs that already are in existence out there and start? So, so I think of like, okay, well, I, you know, the the large FSIs are are the organizations that typically are priming or own the contracts on some of these large programs, and so they're probably looking to to say to take money like that and to move into programs to help agencies and things like that, as opposed to new stuff coming out. Or is it kind of a come? You're gonna we're gonna see a combination of that type of thing. It's a combination of it. Usually, and I, my intuition hunch, if you call it that, and again, there's no, I'm not basing this on like reporting that I've done, right? This is just kind of putting my old research and analyst hat on that I wore before I transitioned back into the world of journalism. Well, let me ask you, you all kind of this. What is the new approach to cybersecurity? Or is it or is it just a matter of now we're actually serious about it and good cybersecurity is not free industry? Honestly, Bad cybersecurity definitely is free. And the ability to do damage in the digital world is is certainly do you want us to it's not a huge that financial burden as representatives of a software <laughs> company or as just general industry participants in this in this arena because you because i got two different answers <laughs> well, when i hat. read your article ross it feels like the government like the strategy is let's just throw some more money at it mm -hmm. that's what it feels like that's Shit, the strategy yeah. money so having more money doesn't make you necessarily smarter right right <laughs> and and so i I'm struggling to understand why on a continuous cycle, new programs and new iterations are constantly coming up. And there's and there doesn't seem to me to be a finish line on the ones that already started. So I couldn't tell you whether or not some of these programs at an individual level individual level are working. It's kind of like, so it's like an incomplete in a college course that we all uh, probably had to take and drop once in a while, right? I couldn't tell you how I did because I stopped six weeks in and started a new one. I I I think that, th that throwing money, it does feel like throwing money at the problem, but we do need to throw money at the problem. So maybe- We need money. 
maybe there's been an, you know, there's been this feeling like we don't have enough people, we don't have enough expertise, we don't have enough of whatever to do what we need to do in these existing programs. So throwing money at it, how that flows out, assuming that the money's going to flow in these programs, give people gives people the ability to hire or whatever. So whether having whether more money will fix the issues in government, IT, not, not just cyber, but let's just government technology in general, right? Whether more money fixes the problem or not is probably a lot. It's line ball, a live discussion on whether that works or not, because it, technology can also be a way for organizations to cut costs, right? And, and so it's one or the other IT, a lot of commercial market enterprises, they use IT as a lever to ring costs out and gain efficiency. So any down payment they make, right, you see, you start to see the curve uh, of spending go down as everybody buys technology on the commercial curve, right? There's a, You won't find anybody in the public sector ecosystem, I don't care if it's government contractors, government agencies, or even, let's say, the highly regulated industries that they wear both hats where government is customer and regulator. There doesn't seem to be any disagreement among everybody that there need, needs to be more talent and people coming into it, and particularly those that may not have been exposed to the public sector ecosystem before. And some of the statistics that that I've written about and covered, and I that, but I think we're going to maybe touch on this later. Well, um, let's just talk about so, it right now. Yeah. I mean, this is something you've covered a lot, Ross, and we've seen like obviously the talent gap, and especially in cybersecurity, we've been filling it for years now. So, I mean, talk about this gap, this challenge, and is there a strategy to fix it? <laughs> Well, there definitely needs to be a circuit breaker at like soon. And one of the and the circuit breaker that I hear people suggest, but how it actually manifests itself, I don't know, is that government agencies and their contractors often find themselves competing for the same talent and not just tech talent, but you, know, you take something like con like contract specialists for instance, right? The government needs those people too, when you, and especially when you consider that close to 7% of the federal government's acquisition workforce is under 30 years of age. Yeah, there's right? been a big turnover there as well, where there, there's been a lot of experience that's gone out the door, right? Yeah, they either, a lot of those people, they either retired during the pandemic, or they just decided, no, I've had enough of this. I want to do something else in the civil service. Um, so it's not, that's not just a great resignation thing. That's just a great uh, realignment, I think, is the word that people often have used, where it's, I, I'm tired of this. I want to do something else. Or, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm just going to go fishing in a lake the rest of my life and happy retirement. I've heard a few people say that. Yeah. I wish I could say that, but a loss up here. <laughs> so 
you said you've heard like they're they're vying for the same talent. Are there ideas of how to attract more talent, how to align the talent better? What are yeah. what's your feelings on that? One of the circuit breakers that and kind of just to kind of contextualize my my job as a journalist, like right, clearly in this setting and others, you've seen that I give a little bit of an analysis. Uh, dose of analysis and opinion, right? But I try not to be too much of, you know, you should do this and you, you should do that. I try to present things to think about and contextualize it to put that to the agenda. One of the circuit breakers that I think everybody involved has to get around is this idea that most of everything has to happen in the national capital region, mm. especially when you consider that, you know, depending on how you do the math of what, how much government contracting contributes to the U.S. economy, but let's just use, let's just use federal spending, right, as a data point, and then you can draw a conclusion of how big this vertical is. It's almost a third of U.S. gross domestic product. When you, when you adjust it for things, you know, like inflation, and look at it more from a long-term perspective. This tells you that it's a national economy and it's not you, just- You mean IT in general or what? Federal spending, of which IT is part of that because it's, you know, government contractors don't just do IT, right? There's, right, right. And, I, and I don't cover these specifically, but you know, there's construction, there's defense weapons, there's all, there's all sorts of stuff. But there, I, But everybody uses IT, even though they're not, Right, IT contractors, right? Mm -hmm. But for the size of the vertical that it is, and I would argue that it's arguably bigger than some of the other ones, if it's a national industry, it needs to be one. It, it actually needs to act like one. And so I, the, this idea that everything has to be along the I-95 corridor, which is, I, I would think it's 100% developed, but for some reason, we keep finding new places to build data centers in Fairfax and Loudoun County, right? Is that they're going to have to look at other geographic regions. And, and there are some efforts to make that happen, but the talent has to come from somewhere. And we're in a region that essentially has zero unemployment. So the math, like it, it just stripping away yeah, this is the emotion that that caused. You're 100 percent right. This is not a cat. This is a national problem. Yeah, but you know, it I, seems I, like a generational problem as well. It's it. It almost seems like it's going to take a generation for us to be able to answer the mail. Because if you talk, if you if you think, okay, we need to in you know, it needs to be in investment and collaboration with academia universities, whatever, but it doesn't have to be university. It can be trade schools, tech schools. I mean, like the, when, when airmen go into the air force, young airmen, they can they train a whole generation of these people to learn these tech skills in their schoolhouses and things like it, that. I do think mission and purpose is something that can be sold to future talent. Like that's not, I, I can't tell anybody they're wrong when they, say that's why you should join the public sector ecosystem. 
And that's true of any job, right? Why it, that's one of the takeaways of this great, I don't like the word great resignation because we all have to be doing something. We all just can't be fishing on a boat like I joked about earlier, right? But purpose and meaning and work is something that's no longer like a, well, you know, I can have it, but if I'm you know, doing this job without a career for advancement, like, you know, some of us are content with that. That's true of some people, but I don't believe that's true of the majority either. So the leaders in this ecosystem, they can definitely sell purpose and meaning as a, as a reason to become part of it. But what a lot of organizations, and I don't care if this is commercial or government, people want to see not just that their job matters, but they want to see room for advancement mm -hmm. and development, or they're going to go, or they're, they're essentially going to go somewhere else, right? The days, of, the days where people just got a job at an employer and stayed there for 40 years, those have been gone for a while. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. And can you talk to us about Alliant 3? I'm not going to lie. I hadn't heard of Alliant 3 before, so I'm just going to show my ignorance here. So I want you to start with explain what Alliant 3 is and why it's such a big deal. So the General Services Administration, which is the mission that they are most known for in government, is they're the government's a uh, real estate agent and their land and essentially their landlord, right? So they are responsible for the real estate portfolio of essentially every agency. They also run a lot of procurement and acquisition activity on behalf of agencies that don't want to run that themselves or they don't feel like the ex they have the expertise in-house to run that. And so they basically say, okay, like GSA, can you do this on our behalf. I hope that sets the overall context for the Alliant program. And it's a, it's a contract program essentially for IT services and solutions, and it's available to any, any agency. Billions of dollars are obligated and spent against it every year when agencies place orders against it. So it's a vehicle that companies try to get on as almost like it's kind of an overused term, but you know, we'll go with it. It's a hunting license for companies to essentially compete again to provide IT services to other federal agencies. And GSA isn't quite ready to talk about this third iteration that's coming up of the Alliant vehicle. But later on this year, we'll see kind of their, their initial draft plans for how they plan to go about it. So I, I hope that helps. Is the Alliant vehicle the GSA schedule? Like just getting on the GSA list? Different. Okay. G, yeah, G, GSA schedule is like for very commoditized services. Right. Okay. So if you, if you want to buy pencils, pens, IT commodities, you know, the GSA schedule is for that. What Alliant is about is these big, big, big 
IT jobs that agencies need to get done. So what are the differences between the previous versions in this one? Just refreshing, refreshing kind of uh, direction? So federal law requires that they recompete these contracts, right? So it's not a case of GSA telling the companies, we don't like we don't like what you're doing. So we're gonna, you know, go out and re and essentially rebid it, right? The law says that they have to hold a new competition at you know every, we'll just call it every seven to ten years. Cause I think the current it's the current one. The current one was awarded about five years ago. And so I like ballparking it that has about a few years left of runway to it. But because it has a few years left of runway and considering the complexity of these of the IT services that agencies want to order through this vehicle, GSA's got to start the work now, essentially, on planning. They, they can't procrastinate on this forever. So and that would be true. That's true of all, of all government agencies. I don't care you know, if it's a defense weapons platform or anything. These things have to be on a certain schedule. They don't just, you can't just get it done in a month, given the size, scale, and complexity of it. And there'll be certain, there'll be a certain amount of dollar value associated with this. And there'll be large and small and set aside parts for different companies and organizations to compete. So Alliant is open to companies of all shapes and sizes. Now, GSA is running this other, is going through its cycle for this other procurement called Polaris, which was, it was originally when they were competing this current second iteration of Alliant, the full and open one predominantly of large businesses, GSA awarded it, got through protests and whatnot. The small business sibling vehicle for Alliant 2 they awarded it. It got protested and for reasons that are too complicated and too lengthy to get into for this program. The GSA decided to essentially redo it into this other procurement called Polaris, which is, yeah, as I tried to describe earlier, it's a sibling vehicle essentially to the Align program, but it's for the small business community only. And so that that's the set aside equivalent and GSA is going through that process as we are recording this. Hey, can can I switch gears here for a second? Um, You got me thinking about like some things that, you know, I know I've seen over the past few years, but there's been a lot of, been a lot of movement, M&A movement um, with large organizations out there, like the FSIs and things like that, you know, even in, in, uh, uh, other industries, you know, related to this as well. Can you talk a little bit of that or provide us some insight as to some of the things that you're seeing around this? So it, it's funny when I was studying, uh, it's kind of what I've said and written, and I, I kind of made a joke about this before we turn on the recording, right? It's very easy for a <laughs> business reporter to forget what he's said and written in the past, which is kind of dangerous because there's a digital record of it. So if I get, if I make a, if I, if I make a mistake or I get a take, that's completely like wrong. Someone will message me later and go, what, what, you know, what was this idiot saying five years ago? Right. Didn't pan out. So I've been covering this as a researcher and then turned journalist for 
close to 10 years, I've seen three companies, off, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head. I've seen three IT and services-oriented companies list themselves on the public markets, be, become publicly traded companies, and all of them have gotten acquired since then. It's three times. Just, just when I get used to adding this company on my watch name. list. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. And then, and then they just disappear it, in a few years. And that, that shows you how, and one could argue with their conspiracy theory hat on that they listed, pu- they listed publicly with the idea that they advertise themselves and get sold later. Not to name names, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that's happened once. Um, <laughs> But that should illustrate how fast a lot of these companies at least feel like they have to change themselves, change themselves, and not just through, you know, not just through large scale M and A, but but you can also look back at some of these companies, right, and see maybe the small acquisitions that they've done earlier on, which sometimes those are the ones that you have to look back on. More so than the headline grabbers, although we love a multi-billion dollar acquisition. It gives us plenty to write and talk about over the next few days. The smaller ones don't, I would caution everybody not to overlook those because when you chart a company's history, you can look at, you can look at those that maybe in terms of size, they don't look at all that significant, but you go, okay, they did this, they did this, they did this, and this is what they turned into. And you can see how companies make little marginal reinventions throughout their comp- throughout their history, right? It's, I mean, it's just like the pop music career of Madonna, right? She's done these little reinventions here and there and she's still relevant. That's an interesting, that's an interesting analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So there, it sounds like I got to pick some, I got to pick something that's outside of the real world. And she, and she, look, she's done it. So I, I don't the Madonna yeah, playbook true. seems to work in GovCon. So the mergers and acquisitions are happening often and that's not going to change. And it sounds like it's necessary for for the companies to even stay relevant. This is a very, very difficult corner of the economy to maintain organic growth and just on your own, because even though there, there are no official statistics on this, but it's very easy to become entrenched in an agency or in a particular division of that agency as an incumbent, and particularly in the defense and national security community, where a lot of these founders and entrepreneurs of of small businesses, they're able, because of their knowledge and relationship to essentially ring fence the customer. Mm, Yeah. Right. And so if you're one in, if, you know, and even when you look at the federal systems integration community, like the tier one, you know, blue chip, it may look like they're actually in every corner of the market and they just dominate it. But if you do the math and you use essentially their own numbers against them, because, well, 
to set the context for that, right? A lot of pub, what a lot of publicly traded companies do because they have to talk about their business is they'll size up what they call their addressable market, right? So that's an area of the federal budget that they feel like they can work in. And for even for the large ones, if you use their own numbers against them and look at their addressable market, some of them are only in about two to three percent of it revenue wise. So in the grand scheme of government contracting, even the largest of the largest, the idea that they have this, that one on its own has overwhelming market dominance and power, it's not necessarily true. Now, when you put the, when you put the tier ones you know, together in a big blob, then certainly you can see the percentage of the market that they dominate. And so I hope that paints a good picture for you. Yeah, yeah, it does. So I want to, before we run out of time, it time's always beating us on this show. I want to talk about your podcast. So Project 38, tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast, where the name came from, what kind of guests um, you interview. Yeah. So stay tuned on Project 38 because we're, we're going to be rolling out some, hopefully some positive updates on that front. I'm going to leave everybody in suspense as to what is going on there. But the, the basic format of it isn't going to change. And so the podcast is essentially a mix of interviews with industry executives and other market observers and analysts um, type people that watch the industry. And that essentially we try to take the some of the conversations that aren't fit to write articles from sometimes, but we did, but newsmaker interviews are also very much a, very much a part of it. Um, and, and it essentially what we try to do is we try to cover all of the angles of the market, essentially in, uh, in a spoken form, whether that be a interview of a CEO, for instance, you know, those, of then not just the head of the FSIs and defense companies, right? But some of these commercial companies that have a head of federal, that's a CEO equivalent. So that that's one class of interview. We we have group discussions along to industry executives and peers that often work together about this uh, tech trend. And it's a conversation just like what the three of us are having. And then we bring on some of the market observers who's Clients are the government contractors looking to do, looking to win business, and they bring and they also bring an interesting perspective on some of the things that their clients are telling them about the business, you know, legal and regulatory environments. To and that helps you. Know, so when you put those three elements of guests together, maybe you can see the entire picture of what we're trying to accomplish. I'm sure it would be helpful for me to listen. This is like what we've been talking about today. It's so complicated. There's so many layers. I mean, I can't even get my head around the amount of money. And what? Well, that should tell you that this is a real industry, just like in the same way that energy, healthcare, construction, contracting is a real industry. Yeah. Well, it is, and and it's a. It's not even just. it's not even an industry or a market. When you look the size of it, it's really an economy. 
because the U.S. government, it's for uh, somebody told me this a long time ago, right? And and it still stuck with me is USG is Fortune One. Yeah, they buy they buy every single thing that you can think of, and you can add up the, all the commercial enterprises uh, in the in the world, and they don't have the buying power or diversity that the U.S. government provides. And so it's, is it complicated? No, sure. But, but when you get past the, we'll say the nerdum, right, of procurement and acquisition and the way that the government is required by law um, to buy things, I won't, I will never say that it's simple because the world of business and economics journalism is complicated to begin with. But you know, when you when you start to look at it from that lens of how consequential it is, then it starts to become more real and not well, just a world of jargon and legalese and such. You know, if you Ross, if you look at the the, the GDP of the United States, and you think that, um, and you say that the U.S. that government spending or that 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 is a third of the GDP in the country. There are only two or three countries in the world that are larger than that. Yeah, and I've heard that before, what what you just said, Ross, that um, the U.S. government is a uh, a fortune one. And absolutely, yeah. So, all right, let's leave this nerddom for the next nerddom. Hold on, hold on. Can I I go back and just ask one, one question? Um, so you meant, you mentioned, and, and I agree with you, the world doesn't revolve around the Capitol Beltway as far as, you know, everything related to what we're talking about. However, I wanted to get your take, quick take on, uh, Raytheon and Boeing moving, moving their headquarters to the Capitol Beltway. This is one I got a little bit, uh, I got some interesting feedback on my take for this. I think that's more reflective of what's going on at Raytheon and Boeing than the Northern Virginia economy, because Uh I just, I am a noted skeptic of the impact that corporate headquarters have on local economies. Now, if you're a Nova economy watcher, the postscript to that is the thing to watch is the tech campus that Boeing is built trying to build in Northern Virginia and capture the effect of what Amazon is trying to do with its second quarters <laughs> in Crystal City. That that HQ two thing is going to change all of our lives in ways we aren't even thinking of now. Okay, yeah. Boeing is trying to capture a little bit of that by building an innovation and education type campus where they can where they can essentially you know, try to capture that capture some of the investments that Amazon is putting into the education ecosystem in Northern Virginia and you could call it the state of Virginia right as part of their move into Virginia are you suggesting right? that Amazon at least inspired Boeing to do this this is because of an Amazon so, move? This is my it's it's my opinion, okay. But it's my but if you sort of read between the lines on Boeing's announcement, 
So if you, I encourage people to go back and read the announcement, the announcements of Raytheon and Boeing moving their corporate headquarters. Now, let's take the headquarters alone by itself. Yeah. How many jobs? They don't say. What kind of construction are they going to do? They don't say. Okay. Raytheon's announcement is very, it's kind of bland and boring in nature. Now, it's important to Raytheon to be in Washington. That, that, that is not in dispute. So when I talk about the importance, this is more from a Nova economic perspective, right? The Boeing announcement about the move of their corporate headquarters from Chicago to Northern Virginia, there is a lot more detail in it about the campus that I'm talking about mm -hmm. than the corporate headquarters of high-ranking executives, including ostensibly the CEO, to, at, to have an office here. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, this is, and I mean, a lot, and Boeing is not far from the only company in the region that, you know, is trying to capture whatever HQ2 is going to be in, in Northern Virginia. And again, right, it's, it's going to change our lives in ways we don't really think of right now yeah. all right can we switch nerddoms now we can we can switch i just that, that just has been uh, no I'm, I'm, glad you, or... I'm glad you brought it up it's interesting um all right so we want to go the, to our tech talk questions we have time for just a couple quick fun questions for you um and i'm going to kick it off with i'd love to know what you think the next big leap in technology will be ross I'll tell you the one I'm most interested in watching the next big leap up. So one of the hats that I wear at WT is I watch the telecommunications space. So including mm -hmm. the wireless carriers and even the satellite network carriers too, because there's so much, there's so much overlap that I'm going to do a little show and tell, right? There's enough overlap. I believe, between this iPhone that I'm doing a little show and tell with right on the screen mm -hmm. and what's happening in the government space, because what everybody in the government space, they want to have the same experience that I'm holding up to the camera here. They don't want too much specialization, right, in case of security. 6G is apparently a thing that I learned about last year and i am under the impression that some of the standards bodies around the world are already looking are already starting to maybe not write down what 6g is supposed to look like but at least be like at least be prepared for 6g even with when we see all these commercials of you know 5g being in all these different markets and i, I cannot I cannot tell you what 6G is supposed to look like because 5G is going to, again, it's going to transform the world in ways we don't understand. It's going to transform rural America in ways we don't understand. Because I, I'm kind of a. Yeah, it's 5G still rolling out, right? Like we're not yeah. there it's yet. Started. We're not there yeah. yet. <laughs> we're, yeah, it's not, it's not there yet. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to say that it's impactful 
not impactful to a lot of us that are in urban areas. You know, we'll get better, we'll get a different kind of spectrum and faster phones. Where you'll see the real effect of this advancement of 5G and 6G is in places like rural America that are just not, um, you know, building cable and fiber optic you know, infrastructure in some of those areas. It's just, a, it's not feasible. Okay. But we see what's going on, like with Starlink and some of these, like the satellite yeah. constellations going up to tap into that. So I, am intrigued by whatever it is that 6G looks like. And it's just like HQ2, right? Ways we aren't going to be able to picture right now. Yeah. All right, Mark, you get the last question. Well, this is my favorite question, and we never really get to ask this question. But if you had a magic wand and you could just invent a new technology, um, what would it be? A, a brand new technology. Well, Jeez. you can heart you can hark it or make it reality. Yeah. Teleportation sounds kind of cool. <laughs> no, that's I like that one. That's a good one. I just finished a book about teleportation too and the argument about how it worked in Star Trek <laughs> and, and stuff. So but why I mean other than cool, like yeah. Time travel is teleportation. Well, this is going to reveal me as maybe kind of a weak sauce um, individual. I am not one at this point in life that really likes uh, big adventures out into the bush, like and 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 in these (laughs) places in in nature where you're disconnected Mm -hmm. from everything. And you're out there for 16 like hours a day when all you have is what's in your backpack and this and a water bottle that like I'm pulling up to the computer screen right now. That's less of my thing. So teleportation would be a nice shortcut to some of the See. places like the Appalachian Mountains or even some of these desert places in Africa where it's like a deathly hot. So you're not going to gonna be, there. be Jeff Goldblum in the in the in the fly. You're not going to be the first one to do this. <laughs> no, no, I love not it. Even. And I love that you just want to do this for your own entertainment. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's it. I mean, it, it's uh, yeah. I just I I, I find that I, I'm just an urban kid now that grew up in rural America, and I still I still love it, but I'm more of a day trip person out into wildlife, especially yep. as, as opposed to being out there for a weekend. Way to know yourself, Ross. And I'm going to, I'm going to end it there. Ross, thank you so much for shedding some light. Like I said, the whole contracting world is incredibly complicated. Um, you, you've certainly helped me understand a little bit more and some of the really important things that are happening right now. So thank you so much for taking time with us today on Tech Transforms. Thank you, Ross. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. And listeners, we will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 